Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. After taking off the old, Paul finishes his version of what not to wear by showing us what to put on instead. Executive Director of Family Transformation Jimmy Kim continues the series Colossians, The Supremacy of Christ, with this sermon entitled, What Does It Mean to Put on Christ?, which covers Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning, Perimeter Church. Today's scripture reading comes from Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. And together, let's recite or let's pray our prayer of illumination. Grant, almighty God, that as you shine on us by your word, we may not be blind at midday, nor willfully seek darkness and thus lull our minds asleep. But may we be roused daily by your words and may we stir up ourselves more and more to fear your name and thus present ourselves and all our pursuits as a sacrifice to you, that you may peaceably rule and perpetually dwell in us until you gather us to your celestial habitation where there is reserved for us eternal rest and glory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen and amen. If you missed last week's sermon, I'll I'll take a quick, quick moment because it's these two sermons, they they have to go together. As you look at the whole of Colossians 3, it is important for us to understand this imagery of putting off and putting on. And so last week, you know, Jeff, he he spoke uh, out of Colossians 3 verses 1 through 11. Um, And he had two main points. The first point being embrace your position in the righteousness of Christ. Embrace your position in the righteousness of Christ. It is what Christ has done for you, so therefore embrace it, live in it. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says, If you've then been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Right? This is a positional reality that God has moved us from a place of being apart from him, and now by faith in him, by his grace, we are in him. So we embrace it. Not only do we embrace it, his second point was to mortify our condition through the power of Christ. Mortify our position through the power of Christ. What does that mean? Mortify meaning put to death. It means to refuse it, to cut it off. 
cut off what? Our old condition. What is our old condition but that we were sinners? And how do we do this? We do this through the power of Christ. Jeff, simply, or Jeff said, simply put, we cannot set our minds on Christ and on sin at the same time. We know from scripture, it says that we can't serve two masters. Rather, there's only one. You will bow to one and worship the other. We cannot afford, he also said, to be indifferent toward our sin. It is not something to, to trivialize. It is not some little thing for us. We must take this seriously and we must cut it off. We mortify our condition not by our own behavior and our own actions or the work of another. Humanly speaking, we do this only through the work and power of Christ. And so when we look at our passage for today, verses 12 through 17, again, there's going to be a temptation as you read it, simply to see it as a list of attributes or virtues to put on. And in many times through the course of this sermon, that is what I'm going to commend us toward. Put on these virtues. But let us remember this. We cannot do this on our own power. We must do this in the power of Christ. And again, just as we just sang, it is through this one gospel that keeps us. And that is our purpose. So if there's a main idea for today, it is simply this. That by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of Christ, followers of Christ are to put on the wardrobe of Christ's likeness. This is true for the individual and for the collective body of Christ, both internally and externally. Now, there's a good possibility that you look up here and you see Jimmy Kim very well put together, but don't be fooled by the blazer. This is not normally how I dress. This is not normally how I am. In fact, I will tell you that the potential for me to spiral into existential crisis takes place nearly every single morning in one particular room in my house, and that is my closet. <laughs> maybe you're like me, maybe you're not. I feel this. I feel this deep into my core. It is as if there is an astrophysical anomaly, a wormhole, where every time I go into it, I'm immediately taken to a place where I question everything about myself. It's not just the items that are in the closet, it's the person standing in the closet questioning what's on the rack. I have nothing to wear, I say. Nothing fits. I don't like this style, it's so last year. Or, you know, to be really honest, this is so 10 years ago. <laughs> I need to go shopping, I need to change all these things about my life, and I run through this nearly every single day. We talk about this wardrobe or closet imagery because what Paul is talking about here in Colossians 3 is that we are to put off the old. You should be in crisis. Why are you trying to put on these old clothes when I have given you a brand new wardrobe and a new closet and new things to put on? Put instead on these things. So in Colossians 3, we see a very clear list of what needs to be occupying our closet and our wardrobe, how we are to be maybe, uh, to take it very loosely, how we are to be restyled, out with the old and in with the new. So let's look at Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17 in three ways. And we want to look at first the what, 
the what is in the wardrobe. We'll look at the why. I know last week Jeff talked a lot about the why of we need to, to put on the new things, but we're going to look at that a little bit more closely. And then we're also going to look at the how. How do we put on these new things? So starting in verse 12, put on then, Paul says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And we're just going to stop right there because there's a lot even in those two phrases. Put on as God's chosen ones. This is who the people of God are. If you are a Christian and you put your faith in Jesus Christ, who are you? You are chosen, you are holy, you are beloved. That is what marks the people of God. They are holy and they are beloved. They are set apart and they are loved. And that is their identity. Now, I don't know about you. Again, when I go to that closet, when I look in the mirror, I don't think holy and I don't think beloved. I long for those things but I don't necessarily feel those things. And this is why Paul reminds us, this is who you are. Stop living in the old ways, he says. He says instead, as God's chosen ones, this is who you are positionally, who you are. The righteousness of Christ is applied on you by faith through grace. This is Paul's message throughout this letter in the book of Colossians, going all the way back to Colossians 1, verse 10. It says, Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, Paul says, because this is who you are. So walk in this way. Verse 11, he says, live according to his glorious might. What is the fuel? What is the power behind this engine toward holiness? It is Christ himself. So live by his glorious might. And then verse 12, it is the father who qualifies you. No matter how much you do, whether you think positively or negatively, it is the Father who qualifies you. This is not just for our own personal development, though that is good. It's not just for our own personal holiness, though that is good. There is something incredibly deep and profound happening in this verse. And you may miss it. What's happening here? Paul is not describing a person or a group of people who are simply to put on these new ideas, these new virtues. No. What Paul is calling us to is to live as the people as God initially created them to be. Pre-fall. When God created Adam and Eve in his image, this is how he created them. With compassionate hearts, with kindness, with humility, with meekness, with patience. Bearing with one another, forgiving one another, loving one another, teaching and admonishing one another with thankfulness in their hearts to God. This is who God is calling us to. And that's what he called Adam and Eve to. But we know from the story of scripture, Adam and Eve failed. They were tempted, they were deceived, and they sinned. And so while the temptation may be to look at the whole of the scripture story, the story that unfolds in all of scripture to say, Jesus is coming to forgive me of my sin. The answer is yes. But also Jesus is coming to restore all of us, those who would believe, to this pre-fallen created state. This is good news. So what are we to put on? Again, I mentioned it and I'll say it again. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Now, there's a temptation to look at that list as with any list in scripture and think, okay, this is good. I'm very simple-minded. I need simple things to accomplish, objectives to accomplish, things that I can put on my list and cross off every day. 
Craig Keener, in the Bible background commentary, he writes this, ancient culture was pervasively religious, but most pagan religious practices were simply ritual observances that did not cast moral influence over one's daily life and ethics. Not so Christianity, not so Christ. So Paul, in contrast, every aspect of life must be determined by Christ's lordship. This is not simply a characteristic that you ought to put on because it's kind to do or the right thing to do. It is because this is who Christ is. And if we are going to be marked as people who follow Christ, then we need to look and smell like him as well. And that is what we are to do. We'll take a closer look at each of these again in our third point. Let's move on to verse 13. Verse 13 says, Bear with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Somehow, Paul follows up a very difficult verse with a doubly difficult verse. Bear with one another? What does that mean? Now, you may be tempted to think that it means simply to put up with someone else, right? Those of you who have been in long marriages, relationships, or have children, you know this idea to put up with someone, right? I know I do this every single day and I don't do a great job at it because my attitude is, okay, I better not say anything. I should at least put up with this woman. I at least should put up with these children. That's not the idea that Paul has here. Instead, what Paul is saying is to hold yourself up against them. Patiently endure them as they patiently endure you. Support one another. It's not a put up with, be content to be in the same room. No. To bear with one another is to actively still pursue one another. Why forgive? Why bear with one another? Because again, that is what Christ has done for us. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, he says this, we are in process, and ultimately we will be masterpieces, though it may be difficult to perceive it now. We are not yet what we are going to be, and we need to bear with one another as the process goes on. Wow. That'll preach. Husbands and wives, for those of you in the room that are married, Look at your spouse and say, you are God's masterpiece. And though I may not fully see it right now and in this moment, I believe it because that is who Christ is making you to be. That is who Christ says that we are. We are masterpieces. Christ sees the completed work, even though we are still works in progress. Why? Not because of us, but because of Christ in us. And then verse 14, above all of these, put on love, the greatest of virtues. 1 Corinthians 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is love. So put on this virtue. It is to say that the love of Christ, that is the primary virtue. And from that, so exudes all of the other ones. But notice also what it says toward the end of verse 14, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, I, I, I'll be completely honest with you. In the, in the sermon writing process, there are times when you're thinking, okay, I need to think of a great illustration here 
And so when I started thinking about this bond that is perfect, right? I started thinking about what are the strongest bonds that exist in the physical world, right? And then I started like looking at websites about like chemistry, covalent bonds and ionic bonds and I immediately started closing them all. I was like, this isn't it. This isn't gonna help us, right? And even that, like, you know, some of you who are in chemistry, maybe you just took your AP chem test and you're like, nope, I don't wanna hear this. I'm done with this content and this understanding. In one ear, out the other. This bond that binds us, this love of Christ that binds us is saying that there is nothing that can separate us. We know this from Romans chapter eight, do we not? There is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. This is a bond that connects us so intimately with God and God so intimately with us. And not only is it a vertical bond, it is a horizontal bond from me to you and you to me. Notice that it's not dependent on me. It is dependent on Christ. A bond that's dependent on any one of us is going to fail over time with enough heat and with enough resistance. But the love of Christ is a bond that is forever. It is eternal. It bonds so perfectly and so completely that whatever is united cannot and will not fail. This is the love of Christ. And this love of Christ, it fills us. And so we talk about this word sanctification so often in in church and in our Christian circles. And we need to take a moment because what Paul is describing here in Colossians 3 is the work of sanctification in the life of the church and in the individual. Colossians 3.10, it says, literally, put on the new self, which is being renewed. Which is being renewed. It's not you've been renewed and so now live. It's saying you are being, this, this work is ongoing. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says this in question 35, what is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man, the whole person after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. There's a lot in this question and answer. Let's look at it one more time. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace. It's the work of God. God is the one who is sanctifying and purifying and making me more holy, more and more into his likeness. And not just little parts of Jimmy, but entirety of Jimmy is becoming more like him. Though I may disagree, though the people around me may disagree, in faith we believe and we cling to the fact that God is changing us and the whole person. And what is that model image? It's the image of God. It's the person, it's the likeness of Christ in us. And I love this. And we are enabled by the power of the spirit to more and more die to sin. You know how Paul talks about dying to sin? Put off the old, put on the new. How does that happen? It happens by the power of Christ in us. And then we would choose righteousness, not choose sin. The work of sanctification is not a self-improvement plan that I can put myself on. It's not a generated ad on Instagram. Want to self-improve? Click this, buy this product. It's not something that I find in the bookstore or in the library. Sanctification is the work of God, of God's free grace. 
And so we can sing with our children, maybe not so much our children, unless we're teaching them this song. I would venture to say that a lot of us in this room know the song little by little bit every day. Little by little bit in every way. My Jesus is changing me. Praise God. He is changing me. Less of me, more of him. That's the refrain that John the Baptist even uses. Less of me and more of him. You've heard it from the stage here from Jeff, and I'll say it again. Not that my words have any more weightiness than his, but in case you have neglected it, I'm going to encourage you once more, if you've not listened to the podcast episode with Dane Ortland, go and download that on whatever streaming platform or go to the website and find the link for it. It's a couple of weeks old now, but every episode in that series has been so incredible. But this one from Dane, he says a couple of things that I'm going to repeat here. In fact, I will tell you the minute marker. Like go to the, around the nine minute marker. If you can't listen for 35 minutes, at least listen to the two or four minutes after the nine minute mark. Dane says this, to grow in holiness is not a diminishing, a lessening of who I am. Choosing holiness does not make me less, but it's a solidifying of who I am. It's a confirming of who I am. It's a strengthening of who I am. He says, word for word, be today who you now are. You are born again. You are in Christ. You are alive. So why act like you're in a spiritual coma? You are this. So why are you acting like the old self? Put off the old, Paul says, and put on the new. Now, there's a danger here to make these characteristics or these virtues the end goal. And I'll say a quick word of warning. Do not try to put on compassionate hearts and kindness and gentleness and meekness and patience and love apart from Christ. Don't disembody it from the person of Christ. Don't you understand that a compassionate heart disembodied from Christ is not true compassion. It's an imitation. It's an imposter. It's a phony. Don't settle for the lesser thing. Go to the true thing. In other words, the goal of these Christian characteristics is union with Christ. Every single one of them unites us so intimately with the person and the work of Christ. The goal is not the characteristic itself. The goal is Jesus. So that's the what. Why? Real quickly, two reasons. One, because it's for our good. Why should we put on these new clothes? Why, when we contemplate our, our appearance and our identity, why should we put on the new things? Because it is for our good. I've already spent time talking about it. This is our reality in Christ. It's for our sanctification. By putting on these virtues, we practically put into action that which we say we believe. If I say that I believe in Jesus, then I should look and smell and talk like him and go where he goes as he went. Romans 6, Paul talks about this in a very different light, but very similarly. He says in Romans 6, when you have the master of sin, you will obey its passions. So you will either be a slave to sin and unrighteousness, or he says, in Christ, you'll be a slave to righteousness. And then he says this in verse 14, and notice a similar language back to Colossians 1. Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, 
but now you're under grace. No dominion over you. This is a kingdom thing that's happening. By faith in Christ, we move from the dominion of sin and darkness in Christ by his redemption has transferred us, right? Colossians 1.13, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. This is good news. This is the gospel that we just sung about. There is one gospel and is that he has saved me and this is what we're about to partake in the table. These verses are a reminder for every individual believer, every individual believer, that we're not to be like everyone else. We're set apart. We're God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. We see similar lists like this throughout scripture. In Paul's own writing, he, in one place, it'll be called the armor of God. In another place, it's called the fruit of the spirit. Here we liken it to a wardrobe. Put on these new things because it's for your good. But not only is it for your good, my personal good, it is for our collective good as well. It is the good of our brothers and sisters together. These are practices that are put on not simply as individuals, but also together as the body of believers. This next quote is a long quote. Bear with me on this, but he says it so well. One other fact about this wardrobe, Hughes goes on. All these garments can be worn only in community with others, in relationships. How tempting to think that these garments would be so much easier if we did not have to wear them among people. How much easier to think about compassion than to actually do it. How much easier to be kind when we are away from mean people. It would be far easier to put on humility and meekness if we're not being jostled by the proud and the assertive. How much easier patience is in isolation. But that is not the way it works. Christians become better Christians in community. So I caution you. If you think that you can do this on your own, I say you cannot. And that would be in direct disobedience to the way that Christ has modeled it. It's not just a private personal thing. It is a communal thing. In an attempt to try to help us understand this to another level, it's as if you were wearing your team's colors in the wrong section of the stadium. When I was a, a poorer college student, when I was doing some campus ministry down at Georgia Tech, I grew up in the D.C. area and I went to the University of Maryland for a time before I moved down here. So I jumped at every opportunity that the University of Maryland came down to play Georgia Tech. And being in campus ministry, one of the things that I would, or one of the first places that I would go to were to the students that I was ministering to and say, hey, do you have an extra student ticket? I know there's lots of wrong things and rules about that. I was poor and I was cheap and I was very frugal, right? And I wasn't thinking because I would be decked out in red and white, black and gold, and I would go and sit in the Georgia Tech student section unashamedly. But sure enough, like literally sitting there in the stadium behind the band, you see all these fraternity brothers and all these sororities look over at this one guy in red. Like, how did this guy get in here? What do my eyes do? I start immediately looking across the stadium. Who else is wearing red? And then I say, my man, my man, right? On another instance, I remember one time I was wearing proudly my Atlanta Braves cap in the city of New York. I don't even have to finish that. You know exactly where that is going. <laughs> so 
sometimes that we will feel like we're the only one. This is why it's so important that we exhibit these qualities together. We practice them in this midst. And so when we're sent out into a lost and unbelieving world where we are around the proud and the assertive and, and, uh, and mean people, we can say we can do this, not by our power, but by the power of Christ in us. We do this together. So a quick word on unity. Paul's not addressing an individual here. He's addressing a group of people. He's addressing a church, right? And it's a community of believers that are marked by love, by peace, and by God's word. We don't have nearly enough time to dive into this in this passage or in our time today. But let me just say one thing about this peace of Christ. Because when it says that the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, again, he's not talking just to me or just to you. He's talking to all of us. When he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your midst, what he's saying is, let the peace of Christ arbitrate for you. Maybe arbitrate doesn't clarify it. We'll keep on using the the, the language and the imagery of baseball. Let the peace of Christ be that umpire to call the balls into strikes, to call the game by the rules, by the correct rules, to make it happen. And he's saying within the body of believers, church, believers, Let the peace of Christ determine what you say and how you act and where you're going to go. Let the peace of Christ rule. That is what unites us. Yes, the gospel unites us. And we take that further by saying, what what does the gospel do? It unites us through the peace of Christ, through the presence of Christ. Now a quick word on thankfulness, because each of those verses also in verses 15, 16, and 17, they end with a direct call toward thankfulness. Verse 15, it says, be thankful. Be thankful. Verse 16, he ends with, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Teach and admonish one another with the word of God, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Verse 17, Give thanks to God the Father through him. The most common expression of worship in scripture is one of giving thanks. It's at the heart of how God's people are to be. And so I will remember to this day when my youth pastor taught me, which I don't know if it was original to him or not, but he'll get the credit in my mind. And he exhorted us, a bunch of scrawny, good for nothing high school kids be marked with an attitude of gratitude. Be thankful in every circumstance, Paul says. Similarly, Jerry Bridges, in the practice of godliness, he wrote this, our situation is never so desperate that it's not fitting to give thanks to God. Now, some of you hear that and you balk. It's like, Jimmy, I was tracking with you up until that moment. How can I give thanks in the midst of deep pain and deep sorrow deep grief, deep loss, deep suffering. But I would venture to say that the longer you stare into Christ and the longer you stare at the gospel, we would say, whatever God you send my way, I am thankful for because you have done this one thing, which is you have saved me. There is nothing that I have done, nothing that I can do to earn my salvation yet you give it to me freely and abundantly. You give it to me lavishly. 
so we give thanks. We can also trust that this God who saves us is going to sustain us. So even if we're in the midst of suffering and pain and sorrow and loss, he is also going to provide for us that encouragement, that kindness, that patience with us. He will stoop his ear low and he will be present with us. When it says in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. That word comfort means God's presence will be with you. That's the why. Now the how. How do we style this wardrobe? Well, one, there are both inward and external or inward and outward realities, right? There are things that are observable to, to those outside of me, but then there are things that inwardly I need to realize. Before we kind of go through these, you know, the, the, the list that's here in verse 12, uh, I, I do want to share with you one of those illustrations that I was thinking about earlier in this week. And it's this phenomenon of a true mirror. I don't know if you've ever heard of what a true mirror is or a non-reflective mirror. I think I got the wording wrong because that doesn't make sense. How can a mirror not be reflective? What it does is this. Most mirrors, when you look at a mirror, you see a reflection of yourself, but it's reversed. It's a non-reversed mirror. That's what it is. There are mirrors that exist where the image that you see back to you is not reversed, but it is how other people see you. And if you look this up online, what you will often find are people, when they look in this non-reversed uh, mirror, people having deep emotional responses to it. Some, they break out in laughter and tears because they're seeing themselves as other people see them. They're like, wait, that's me, but it's not me. And then you see others who break down in, in tears of grief. Is this what people see? The gospel is one of these true mirrors and where we see ourselves truly for who we are. And you can, yes, linger on the things that make us ugly, our sin, and that which actually would separate us from God, our disobedience. Or we can stare at the good things and the true things, which is Christ in us. So when you think about a compassionate heart, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, compassion, that word in the Greek literally means to the gut. So have a compassionate heart. Let your heart be so moved that you feel it in your body. There is nothing that you can do to stop it and you have to do something to respond to it. So compassionate heart and kindness, they go hand in hand, right? You have this internal gut feeling when you see someone in need or a situation in need, kindness moves you forward toward it. Whereas compassionate hearts means that you are moved to the very core of your being. This is how God created us. So when we see brokenness, when we hear of brokenness, when we experience brokenness, what do we long for? Either we long to be moved toward it or we long for others to come toward us in kindness. Humility. What is humility? Right? Humility has often been said that it's thinking less of yourself. But Tim Keller, in, in many, many of his writings and in his sermons, would often describe humility in this way. It's not thinking of yourself less. Humility, humility is to say you think of yourself less often because I'm thinking so much about the people around me. Now, that can be abused too, I understand. 
Okay, but humility is to not put yourself on the list of priorities. Instead, it's putting the needs of others first. And you can see how a compassionate heart where you move to the very core of your being and kindness where you're then moved to action, how all of these things together come into play. Now, a quick word on meekness. Meekness or gentleness as it's uh, often translated. That word meekness is a, a courteous strength. And the best way that I can think about this is if you've ever been uh, a parent of young children or if you are an uncle and niece grandparent to young children, right? Uh, especially the guys in the room, right? I know with both my kids, they would ask, like, late, can you throw me? You know, especially when they're at the pool, summertime's coming, throw me, right? And there's a picture uh, or a, a video that I saw recently of a father doing this to both of his kids. He's got his young daughter and he's got his young son. Both of them are coming, daddy, pick me up and throw me down. With his daughter, he gently picks her up, boop, boop, lays her down. The son picks him up, slam. <laughs> what do we see in this picture? We see a father who is meek, right? He has the power to slam us down. And even with his son who he slammed down, the father could do way more damage than that, but he reserves it because he knows that it could be painful. So what is meekness? Meekness is a courteous strength. It's a gentleness. Though you are strong, you reserve it back. Some of us, we are very good at being strong with our words and with our actions, with our stances on things. But what does it look like for you to be meek in those stances? Not, not to, to, to back out and not to be weak. That's not what I'm saying. But for the benefit of the gospel, for the benefit of the body, how might we better apply meekness in our circumstances, in our situations, by our speech, by our proximity, by our passions? Lastly, in regards to patience, I'll say this, right? Oftentimes, if someone is impatient, we would say that they're short-tempered, right? They have no ability to withstand. They just have to act in the moment. So then therefore, patience must be long-temperedness, not short-temperedness, but long-temperedness, right? It's the ability to say, yes, I would be right to enact my vengeance, but I am not going to because of the work of Christ in me where I would say retribution is not mine to give. It is the Lord's. And again, there's another incredible lesson for us as a church. How can we, instead of seeking retribution, seek patience in Christ? Ultimately here in all of this, this is the message. We are to put on Christ. We are to be like Christ. I can give you a list of people, missionaries, pastors, leaders, influential, inspirational individuals who embodied these things. But I want you to do some homework on your own and think through in your own life, who modeled this best for you? And then I also want you to ask yourself, how might I model this to the people around me? Not for the sake of modeling, not for the sake of the virtue in and of itself, but for the sake of the gospel work in all of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask and we implore you that you would make us more like yourself. We recognize and we confess, Lord, we fail. We are not great at this. Help us, Lord, to be more and more like you Spirit, would you do that work? Draw us unto you. And Lord, would your words sink deeply into our hearts.
that we may live for your glory, for the glory of your name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.